1: Worker of yours.
2: It is Sunday, July 24th. I'm Bloy Olson. This is Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. As every day seemed hotter last week in the weather, it got warmer in politics as well. The governor's race definitely heated up. The dynamic in some of the legislative primaries is changing. And even the White House started to realize that Democrats have to do and say and have a plan to deal with crime. All that and more
0: Apply today at penfed.org/savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account to receive any advertised product you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great
2: rates for everyone. We're a couple of weeks away from Farm Fest, which will serve as kind of the barometer of the mood of Greater Minnesota, which in the governor's race will be critical. Northern Minnesota has a little too much rain. Central Minnesota has not enough rain, and Southern Minnesota is headed towards a bumper crop. And so the mood of farmers is the first kind of read of where the state is. On Friday, Governor Walls toured an E85 plant. Uh, last Monday, he toured a new hemp farm. Governor Walls isn't given up on Greater Minnesota even though Republicans are very optimistic that their margins there will be bigger. On the flip side, Democrats are acknowledging that they need to really energize the base. And this past week, when Ilhan Omar was arrested in D.C., folks from the DFL and from kind of the Omar camp of the DFL said that's the kind of thing that the activist crowd, the more progressive crowd, needs to see in order to be energized this fall. And then you start to have the impact of Hennepin County, not just in the primary, but in the general election. You see, over the last 12 years, Democrats have increased their turnout and their margins in Hennepin County from 10 to 30%. They need that. They need that intensity. And that's the thing to watch as this summer continues to get warm, The other flip side that Republicans need is they need Trump-like turnout in greater Minnesota, because that's where they can run up their margins. Those are the dynamics of the governor's race, the attorney general's race, and the statewide races. But this week, it was a week of Matt Burke explaining his comments about women and abortion and their role in the community and the workforce. And it seemed to be a story that didn't end. It wasn't a good week for the Burke campaign or the Jensen campaign, but it's July. And you don't lose elections in July and you don't win elections in July, but you can start to lose them or you can start to win them. After several weeks of the Jensen-Burke campaign framing up issues, coming out with plans, and really starting to look like a very disciplined campaign... This week, it was like they were walking down the street and maybe they tripped over a paver or Matt Burke got blindsided and didn't see something coming. That's politics. It's a full contact sport. This isn't a pillow fight. And they know it. So as we look at the week that was, we have to think about, did Burke stumble in a way that will affect the campaign in November? We'll talk to Amy Koch about that. This week, Governor Walls had a news conference on crime. It was delayed a week. He says that the special session is needed to deal with crime. And the White House came out with a new plan on crime. Includes more police. Includes more funding to keep kids busy, out of trouble. But it's July, and this issue has been lingering for almost two years. and. Joe Biden took him a year and a half into his presidency to to really make this the issue. Is it too late? We'll talk to a White House official about the plan, what it means, and what what the dynamics are. You know, it just is what it is. Minnesota politics are volatile. And so as we watch that volatility, I encourage all of you to just take a deep breath. Grab another cup of coffee, because when we come back, we'll talk about crime and we'll talk about the dynamics of the 2022 race and are there parallels to 2010. I'm Boy Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO.
1: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
0: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game.
3: You have 47 new voicemails.
0: Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
2: My first cup of coffee this Sunday morning is with Steph Feldman. She's deputy assistant to the president and senior advisor on domestic policy council. She is working on crime policy at the White House. Steph, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thanks for having me on, boys. So Steph, um, obviously crime is, I think it's one of those big talkers. People are, it's emotional, it's a feeling issue. Um, This week, the administration came out with kind of highlighting things that have been done, but also trying to look ahead some other kind of projects. Where does the White House see the priority on policy to deal with crime right now?
1: Sure. So last week at the White House, President Biden was celebrating the passage of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It's the biggest piece of gun violence reduction legislation Congress has passed in 30 years. And when he was giving remarks, he said, this is a good first step. It will save lives, but we need to seize this momentum to do more. And the president waited less than a week to outline exactly what he means by seizing that momentum to do more. Today, uh, he outlined his safer America plan. And what this does is three key things. First, it funds the police and promotes effective prosecution of crime affecting families, including by providing communities with the resources they need to hire and train 100,000 additional police officers for effective, accountable community policing. Second, it invests in crime prevention in a fairer and more equitable criminal justice system, including funding mental health resources, substance use disorder resources, and access to job training, education, housing, all those supportive services that we know help prevent crime and advance equity. And third, he takes additional steps to keep dangerous firearms out of dangerous hands, calling on Congress to take actions such as requiring background checks for all gun sales and banning assault weapons in high-capacity magazines. These are common-sense steps that the president knows will save lives.
2: You know, pragmatically, there is obviously the proliferation of guns in the hands of people committing crimes is a challenge here in Minneapolis, the Twin Cities. Um, You know, I think last week they took 145 guns off the street. Um, You know, it, it's, it's kind of like feels like whack-a-mole a little right so you guys can do stuff in DC Congress can pass things but how does that get rolled out in local communities to try to keep people safer.
1: So this whole plan is about giving our state and especially our local law enforcement really the resources and tools they need because they are uh, doing a lot of work and they're up against a lot of challenges. And what we they need is they need funding and resources so they can do their job and do their job right. So we're giving them not only funding to hire more law enforcement, but also funding for more training for law enforcement, funding for bonuses for law enforcement so we can get law enforcement on the job and get them out of their cruisers and working and walking with their communities and getting to know the people in the communities uh, and doing the community engagement that can really make a safer community. We also need to be reining in ghost guns, which are those unserialized weapons that... Law enforcement tell us uh, they're increasingly finding out crime scenes. President Biden issued administration issued a regulation earlier this year to rein in the proliferation of those ghost guns to give law enforcement a little additional help in their fight to make our community safer. And this plan allows uh, communities to invest in Uh, getting rid of court backlogs. So when law enforcement arrests someone and charges someone, um, those individuals day in court uh, occurs quickly and effectively um, uh, in order to make sure that people who are responsible for violence in our communities are held accountable. These are all things that will give our law enforcement at the local level more ability to do their job and make our communities safe.
2: One of the things we've seen here in the Twin Cities is since Attorney uh, U.S. Attorney Andy Luger has stepped in, um, you know he's taking specifically carjacking on, and using federal statutes to kind of you know make sure that the it, it's tougher or um, it's a more serious prosecution because locally resources are thin, prosecutors don't have time, courts are clogged, but there's also a philosophy about you know if it's a property crime you know, some prosecutors don't believe you should, you know, keep somebody in jail for a property crime. Is that, you know, how much balance do you think the president or the White House sees working with the Justice Department versus local prosecutors?
1: So the president's plan is to provide the United States Office, uh, Attorney's Office with more funding so they can hire additional assistant attorneys to help with those federal prosecutions when state and local law enforcement need that help. Um, that is one of the best ways that federal prosecutors can uh, be helpful to their communities is if they're really able to go on the ground and take additional cases um, to hold people who are responsible for crimes accountable and make sure um, that there is justice brought in the cases. So that combined with additional um, efforts to undo court backlogs, combined with additional efforts for effective policing and effective intelligence gathering to get repeat shooters and other people repeatedly involved in violent crimes off the street. If you piece all of those pieces of the puzzle together, you start building an infrastructure that is equipped to uh, address violent crime and make your community safer.
2: My guest is Steph Feldman. She's a deputy assistant to the president senior advisor to the Domestic Policy Council at the White House. She's talking about the pro- policy and the proposal that President Biden rolled out uh, this past Friday on crime and dealing with it, including a safer America plan. Steph, there remains debate and tension amongst Democrats on the role of police. The the And, and it's you know, it's alive and well here in Minnesota and Minneapolis. Um, where where can that start to be moved past? Because that seems to be one of the internal debates, either at the local level or at even in Congress, that I think Americans are frustrated with.
1: Yeah, and President Biden has been remarkably consistent on this issue throughout his career. He believes you can have... Uh, accountable effective policing you shouldn't have to choose between safety and uh, trust and accountability in your community um, that's why he believes in what we call community policing which as I said is about law enforcement who get who are able and staffed enough that they can get out of their cruisers they can meet the local coffee shop owner they can know the grocer, They can know the community, develop relationships with the community, and really um, make sure that they're working together to create a safer ecosystem. In addition, the president, Uh, Earlier this year, signed an executive order to advance accountability in policing, Um, hold police accountable to a higher standard, um, ensure that they don't abuse their power, uh, and build trust and strengthen public safety at the same time. We need both of those pieces together. We need more funding for police so they can do their job and more accountability to hold police to a high standard in order to make this work. And those two things don't have to be in conflict.
2: So final question, and it's probably the toughest one. The president can propose this, but Congress hasn't necessarily been fast to act on either new spending or big packages. Any sense that there's some bipartisan support to advance this proposal more quickly?
1: We are committed to get this done. I'd say three months ago. Few people in this country would have said that we would have gotten historic gun legislation over the finish line or that we would have gotten the president's director for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms confirmed. We accomplished both of those just within the past month. We got the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act through Congress, and Congress confirmed Steve Dettelback to be the president's director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. What the president says is we should view that as a good first step that breaks the 30 year logjam we've had in this country on common sense steps to reduce gun violence. So the president isn't letting any time uh, elapse between those successes and laying out what he's calling on Congress to do next. We need to seize the momentum and move forward because lives are on the line.
2: Steph Feldman, uh, counsel at the White House, thanks for joining me on Sunday today. Thank you. Joining me for the final cup of coffee on Sunday Take is Amy Cope. She's a former Senate Majority Leader. She's a lobbyist. She's a political analyst. She has a podcast called Wrong About Everything, but hopefully she's right today. And she joins me this morning. Thanks for joining me, Amy.
3: Yeah, nice to talk to you. Hi,
2: boys. Okay. So, um, you know, I had a flashback this week in a governor's race from 2010, and you were running the Senate campaigns. You're, you know, originally from the Wright County area. You knew Tom Emmer well. As, as you look at kind of Matt Burke's week, it's not a make or break week in a campaign in July. But, you know, what did you make of kind of the way in which this week went down with the Jensen Burke campaign and, and Matt Burke's comments about women and abortion?
3: Right. OK. Well, so there's a lot there. Yeah. So so I've been thinking about the two, this because a lot of people are comparing or talking about how this year is, you know, what this, this is, this is a fantastic Republican year? It's going to be the best year we've ever had. Um, honestly, the polls um, are not showing as good as 2010. Um, and so I would caution Republicans like it's definitely going to be a good year for Republicans, um, but it's not going to be like yeah, 10 was like. A blowout year. I mean, it still could be. Um, it's just a lie, as you said. But um, and even in that year of, tw- of 10 and just for comparison, um, the generic ballot right now is about one point p- plus one point six for Republicans, one point six, one and a half points yeah. um, at the, in November of 2010. It was plus nine for Republicans. So that's wow. the kind of difference. Right. And even in that amazing year for Republicans where we picked up the Senate for the first time in in my lifetime, in your lifetime, yep. um, even in when we won Chip Gravack's seat. remember we took Overstar. That was that seat. Yep. So this was this was a you know high water mark for the GOP. It was the Tea Party. It was all of those things. Um, Emmer still lost, uh, and he and it was close. It was eighty five. I think it was eighty five hundred votes, something like that. Correct. Um, but um, but it was was a series of of mistakes, to be honest, uh, with that campaign. Um, and, and some good work, I would say, on the DFL. Um, and, and so it wasn't just one thing, right? So I think that Burke had a bad week. Um, I think that he's going to have to figure out uh, what they're going to do um, with the whole statement about you know, women, out, women having careers. It basically sounded like he was saying, stay home, stay in the kitchen, and that is going to be a problem for him. So they're going to have to figure their way out of that. Um, but it's not necessarily fatal. It's right. how they recover. And Emmer just never seemed to recover. It was just, it was DUI stuff. Then it was the $100,000 waiters. Then he got pennies dumped on him. Then, uh, you know, and he was waiting at old Mexico. And then there was a member, his um, campaign, one of his campaign managers was um, arrested DUI in Wright County, by the way. Um, And so it was just a, it was a constant effect where the Emmer campaign could just never catch their footing. And I think in the last month or so of the campaign, they did. But at that point, it was too late to recover, even in such an amazing year. And so that's what the Jensen campaign has to be aware of.
2: I think that that's exactly it. And that's where when I talk about the flashback, it is that candidates of all parties, but specifically Republicans in Minnesota, that in a good Republican year, with a uh, in a populist state on popular issues like crime and inflation, have to be extremely disciplined. And you know, I've pointed yes. out that you know the jensen burke campaign has done a good job of laying out kind of ten-point plans a few weeks in a row and kind mm-hmm. of starting to build a framework. And then this week they got tripped up. And as I said to a couple of people, like, okay, so they lost the week. And in a campaign, which you know a lot about and, and are probably kind of still um, think like is you have to think of it as we got to win one week at a time or one day at a time, mm-hmm. rather than thinking you're going to win this campaign in, that happens in November now.
3: Right. No, you have to, especially as the challenger, he has to every, he doesn't really have the room for error. He doesn't. And one week matters. And, and he, this is a self-inflicted wound. May I ask why his lieutenant governor was in another state talking about um, the abortion issue like that? That's not your place. Your your spot is talking about inflation, talking about the supply chain problems and talking about gas prices here in Minnesota. So what are you doing? Like, that's just not I would say to that, like that doesn't you know what? That's something for December. That's something for next January. That's not for right now. Um, and so 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 what happened is, you know, they they did something that was completely not on message, completely not even in the state. Uh, and they got and they got tripped up on it. So, you know, from a Republican perspective, you hope that they learn from that, uh, correct it and right the ship. And and by the way, if people that say the lieutenant governor doesn't matter, I, uh, I offer you 2006 and Judy Dutcher. Absolutely. So it does matter. It can it, again there. It was not so much that Judy Dutcher had a bad week. She did. This is when she asked about, she couldn't know, she didn't know what E85 was when asked a softball question. What happened is it snowballed. Mike Hatch called someone a Republican whore and the recovery never happened. And he lost that election in a, in a really banger DFL year.
2: Exactly. And that's a year that Amy Klobuchar won big. So, I mean, these Minnesotans. Everybody won big in that year. Exactly. (laughs)
3: They were Democrats. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: Hey, one last thing before we kind of transition. My guest is uh, Amy Koch. She's a Republican. Uh, she's a former Senate majority leader. She's now a lobbyist uh, and, and analyst. Amy, um, what, one of the things that I'm waiting for the fundraising reports to come out is, did Jensen's campaign kind of unite the Republican donor base, big donors, after kind of that contentious convention? What's your sense?
3: Well, well, of course, nobody knows. We're going to know next week. They have to file what's called the pre-primary report, um, and so we'll know. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm. It's uh, I, what I'm hearing, Lois, is that may have been a problem, um, but but also a campaign can kind of like in those la- in that last week before a report, um, they can a campaign can really if they pour it on can yeah. collect a lot of money. It really because. doesn't take a ton of of time. To collect a lot of money. I think about Karen Housley in 20s um, when she jumped in the race in 2018. We had a one week before the filing period in 2017. She jumped yep. in a week and she raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. Right. Um, and that was like her brand new just jumping in the race and in like a in like a week. So you can raise some money. So we'll we'll know for sure, um, you know, people I'm hearing inside are, are concerned. So so honestly, that's okay. Lowered expectations. This gives the Jensen an opportunity to surprise us.
2: <laughs> One of the other big Republican issues this year and, and dynamics is there's primaries and legislative ratios, specifically the Minnesota Senate against incumbent Republicans. We have you know They're all over the state. There's one in southern Minnesota, there's one in Prior Lake, there's one in northern Minnesota that people are watching really closely. Um, the challengers are, are from, quote, the more liberty wing of the party. It's what, what I would call what was the Tea Party in 2010 or, or, or that kind of dynamic. What's your sense, if any, of, of the way those primaries are, are kind of shaping up?
3: Yeah, so oh, um, there's seven primary incumbents uh, that are being primaried. Yeah. Some of them were kind of last minute uh, jump in the race, and they don't seem to be serious challengers. A couple that I'll flag, um, one in northern Minnesota, Senator Utke. he yeah. actually lost the endorsement, uh, which is a whole other level, right? The, so he and Senator Pratt, which is in like Shakopee, yeah. Prior Lake area, they both went into their endorsing convention on, and, and with a challenger and those challengers won the endorsement and right. the Republican party, the, the endorsement still means something. So that those right, those two, I flag is like the most problematic from my perspective, because the endorsement comes with some built-in votes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just does. It, it comes with lists. It comes with party support. Um, and so, um, So those are the top two that are uh, problematic. But there's also um, Senator Mark Johnson, who's up in like Crookston, Thief River Falls, like the very far uh, uh, northwestern corner of the state. Um, And he's being challenged by David Hughes. And people may say who, but in the 7th District, in the 7th CD, David Hughes ran a couple different times and got pretty close against Colin Peterson. Yep. Um, So he ran a big congressional race. So he obviously knows how to run a race. He knows how to raise some money. And he's got some name ID. Um, so that's another that I've got my eye on. There's a few of them. So I think it, it varies across the way. Um, and, it, and in challengers, um, also uh, like in how much they're working, are they door knocking? Do they even know how to, to target a primary race, which is very different than a general. You can't just go out knocking on random doors because maybe 14% of the people are going to vote in that race. Um, so it's really about driving out your people and finding them and driving them out. Um, which you know is a challenge for both sides, but particularly a challenger who just doesn't have any kind of you know resource um, or knowledge on how to do that.
2: You know, one of the one of the questions is why are they being primaried? Are there specific issues, or is this about kind of we saw kind of a takeover by some pro Trump folks of the Republican Party in Nebraska over the last week? Is this really about kind of a battle for control of the party, or are, is that is it an example where all politics is local?
3: No, you know what I think it really is. It's it is a group, so it's more organized. It's a statewide effort, um, and it's not more conservative. I tell people that all the time. The Tea Party was based around like taxed enough already, yeah. and that was an organized group on that. This is not that. This is really these folks like like literally there are people that have given donations a couple years ago to Democrats. Um, this is a this is a case of, in my opinion, like just like sort of a. It's kind of a power grab, right? Okay. Um, it's not even if you talk to the challengers, they don't really have a lot of conservative anything. Um, they're just talking about like, well, I don't like rhinos. They're just using like weird um, talking points that Republicans that they without any sort of like basis. OK, well, what does that mean? What does that mean from a tax policy standpoint? What does that mean from a pro-life? This guy's got a A plus rating with the NRA and he's got a 100 percent pro-life voting record. And you're challenging him. What what other conservative values is he not following uh and they don't have an answer for that um so that's that's frustrating it's more it's more about just like the power which i think is unfortunate because um there's you know there's good people that are serving there that actually are doing it for the right reasons um and that's why you should be running not because you're rhino hunting (laughs)
2: that's that's not a thing (laughs) that's not a thing hey uh last question and you know the institution very well You it. If some of these primaries flip away from incumbents, you look at some of the other safer Republican seats where uh, you have some new members coming in, you know, fast forward, Republicans keep control of the Senate. Does the culture of the Senate change with a, a lot of new blood?
3: Well, potentially, you've got actually two. Uh, remember the new Republican caucus, which yeah. was an offshoot caucus in the House? Two of those four are going to the Senate now, in fact, and kind of the de facto leader, um, Steve Dreskowski, uh, from kind of Ken- Kenan Falls, Kenyan area. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I did see an interview with um, Representative Dreskowski, you know, uh, who will likely be the, um, the Senator Dreskowski. Yep. And um, he said that he, you know, he liked the leadership of Jeremy Miller. Um, and would support, you know, it seemed like leaning towards supporting him as majority leader. Okay. So definitely, um, the cultural change, because there's going to be a third of the new, the third of the Senate is going to be brand is going to be new. Exactly. Uh, so there's no way to avoid it. I've never seen a turnover like that. Even 2010, when we picked up, you know, all those, we picked up 16 seats, uh, 16 seats. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, but it might not be as much as even I thought that was okay. a surprise to me.
2: Got it. Amy Koch, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. People can find you on Twitter and the Wrong About Everything podcast, which is (laughs) on every podcast. Uh, And I'm glad you were right on Sunday Take rather than Wrong About Everything.
3: Well, I I bring the right for you, boys.
2: I appreciate it. Amy Koch, thanks for joining me. Hey, when it's Sunday, it's Sunday Take at 9 a.m. It's Politics on CCO. Have a great week.